Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. We're back! We did it! Happy New Year! Happy... Twice. It's it's the metal rat this year? I think the it's metal the metal rat. rat. Is that like someone who really, really enjoys metal music? Like, I'm a total know. metal I rat. I don't know if... Is that like a mall rat? I don't know. Maybe Anyway, it's a, it's a I, welcome rat. to the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Anna. I'm Amber. And I'm sick. So this is my this is my my season two voice. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this. I've been re- I've been recast in season two. <laughs> I got too old. Then to get another <laughs> child actor. To oh, play I would me. never. I would never. Oh, well, but anyway, yeah, we're, we're back. back. We're very happy and to be back. We're also happy because we have a shout out to Donald. Hey, Don. Can we call you Don? Well, you know, we just met. So Donald is our newest patron on the Patreon. And um, if you want to join the likes of Donald and all of our other fantastic patrons, you can do so if you go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And so this week we are marching to a very special beat indeed. We're going to be talking about rhythm-induced trances and other forms of altered states, not like the store at the mall. Is that a store? I don't get out. Alter, alter apostrophe D states. I think it's oh, like a get out bougie much. home stuff, so I don't know. I was at the mall, okay, but whatever. Um, different other forms of altered <laughs> states throughout different cultures. Yeah, so... Well, I think I think this was one of the ones where we had the idea for the title first yeah. <laughs> and then and then the rest follows. But I had the idea for for what to do with the rest of this episode while I was reading a book by your Internet boyfriend. Mine. Robert Evans. Yep. <laughs> so the book is called A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization. And mostly it's a history of actual psychoactive substances and their uses throughout history. But there was one specific chapter that I found especially interesting. In it, Evans tests the theory that Stonehenge, we know it, we love it, the famous ring of standing stones in Wiltshire, England, was engineered as a resonating chamber to amplify the noises of drumming and chanting to the extent that it would create a trance-like state for those present inside the ring. So I won't tell you the rest of Evan's story, listeners. It's a really fun book. You can read it for yourselves. But I do want to talk about the effects that sound can have on the brain and about some of the archaeological evidence we have for how people might have induced or encountered altered states with and without psychoactive substances in the past. So first of all, can sound really drop you into a trance? To understand this, it's important to understand that all of your brain activity happens in electrical pulses. We are 
balls of electricity inside meat suits. That's all we are. Oh, no. Yep. Little flashes of electricity run among all your brain cells. Some of that brain activity is sporadic as the brain receives information from all over your body, but some occurs at constant frequencies. And that's why we have brain waves that can be measured by an EEG, an electroencephalogram. Using an EEG, you can see what's going on in someone's brain while you subject them to different stimuli, and you don't have to cut into their skull to do it. So that's a big plus. <laughs> and studies have found, yep, studies have found that music can have a profound effect on the brain. So here's an excerpt from a study published in 2018 in the journal Acta Medica Lituanica. Lithuanian medical things? Medical acts, yeah. I just, God, the niche journals that we find. I love them. I love them so. <laughs> So here's a here's um, an excerpt from that that paper. Scientific studies investigating the effect of music on the brains of healthy people often use Sonata in D major for two pianos K448 by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I'll drop a clip of that piece in right here. Okay, so listeners, how did your brains feel while listening to that? From this article, according to current literature, this sonata causes a significant increase in relative alpha band power, as well as in a median frequency of background alpha rhythm in young adults and healthy elderly people. What? And so, What's alpha yep. band power? That sounds so alpha band. fun. That sounds <laughs> empowering. Alpha band power. Alpha band power. Activate. So basically... Um, you've got different frequencies of wave uh, wave activity in your brains and they're named, they're designated with things like alpha and beta. So an alpha band increase means a, an actual decrease in brain activity. So those things are inversely proportional. So basically while listening to this Mozart sonata, people's brains calmed down. Oh. The, the electrical activity sort of became more quiet. And I just, I really liked this next line of the study just because I don't think it's throwing shade, but it sounds like it is. Interestingly, during this study, no significant changes were observed while listening to Beethoven's for release. <laughs> is that interesting? I don't know. What makes that interesting? I guess because certain pieces of music seem to really influence the brain and other ones don't. I mean, I like for release. But nice. like, did they, did they choose... Two pieces of music. I don't know how many total pieces right. they So that's they like, chose. why yeah. is this interesting? <laughs> it's either like a yes, no, or there's a much wider <laughs> implication. I don't know. I don't know. Huh. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but they, well, they go on to explain it a little further. The effect of music, however, might not be dependent on a specific piece. According to scientists, music that is personally liked by the subjects turns out to enhance EEG power spectra globally and also across bandwidths. So in general, your brain activity either picks up or calms down when you listen to music that you like, which is why a lot of times you get that that frisson that like if you listen to like a really a piece of music that you really like, you get that goosebump. I get, no? No, well, no, I was thinking about what I get that from. And I was like, <laughs> last time I got that was when... Um, Hassan Piker was on a podcast talking about Marxism. 
All right. Well, and I was just like talking own. to the dog and I was just like, oh, God, oh. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> for those who experience that particular goosebump sensation, um, the effect is best seen in the brain in beta and alpha frequencies in the right frontal and temporal regions. So on the right side, right at the front of your forehead and at your temples. My cat is What's making a litter box symphony behind me. <laughs> Playing in your sandbox? <laughs> Disliked music, musical improvisations, like the ones my okay. cat is doing, or white noise, a random signal having equal intensity at different frequencies, do not seem to have the same impact. Okay. So it's, it's more than just perceiving music. Waves can influence the frequencies of other waves, like a bridge undulating when the wind around it hits just the right frequency, or like a wine glass vibrating and shattering when an opera singer hits a particular note. Sound waves can affect the frequencies of brain waves. Studies have found that subjects exposed to consistent low-frequency binaural beats experienced reduced anxiety, and in some cases, increased focus. So you may have heard the term binaural beats associated with various forms of meditation. Basically, you need to be wearing headphones, and one ear gets one low-frequency beat, and the other ear gets another beat that is slightly off from the first frequency. I'm not going to get more technical than that, but we'll include the studies linked in the show notes. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> How you doing back there, Izzy? <laughs> she's she's doing great. Okay, good. Um, so, what about Stonehenge? We were we started talking about Stonehenge. So, Dr. Rupert Till at the University of Huddersfield, UK. I'm assuming it's Huddersfield and not like Hushfield. Housefield. Yeah. <laughs> um, studied, hush puppy. Hush puppy. <laughs> University of Hush Puppies. Um, studied the acoustics of Stonehenge by recreating the original structure digitally and figuring out how the stone ring might have amplified sounds made within it. So here's a report from the BBC, and we'll link to it in our show notes because this has some video clips that go along with it. But in January 2017, David Silito writes, quote, Stonehenge is a ruin. <laughs> Two stars. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever sound it originally had 3,000 years ago has been lost, but now, using technology created for video games and architects, Dr. Rupert Tell of the University of Hushpuppy has, with the help of some... I was really We're hoping I could keep going. <laughs> Dr. Rupert Till of the University of Huddersfield has, with the help of some ancient instruments, created a virtual sound tour of Stonehenge as it would have sounded with all the stones in place. Arriving at seven on a decidedly chilly January morning, I was skeptical. Um, Dr. Till had arrived with a horn, a drum, and some sticks to try to show me that even in its partially deconstructed state, there still was a distinctive echo. Perhaps it's the mystique of the stones, but it's easy to hear something. However, sound is always going to bounce off huge standing stones. How can, <laughs> yep. how can we say that that was in any way meaningful for people 3,000 years ago? Dr. Till says there's a great deal of evidence that ancient people were intrigued and drawn to places that had a distinctive sound, and Stonehenge had a, quote, strange acoustic, end quote. Even today, the wind or drumming can, he says, help generate a 47 hertz bass note. The author continues, saying he first got a taste of what the circle might do to sound when he visited a concrete replica of the original intact Stonehenge in Maryhill in the U.S. state of Washington. 
Mm-hmm. He has not now. The one you live near. Not no. The other, the other one. Nope. He has now developed an app which will help people blot out the sounds, including those made by tourists and cars on the nearby A303, that's a highway, and go back to the soundscape of 3,000 years ago. He's used instruments that were used at the time, such as bone flutes and animal horns, which that's like a shofar, not like a... (laughs) 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 I just imagined that meme of like... The caterpillar playing the saxophone. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's blowing into the horn of like a sheep or okay. I don't know, cow. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> to give people a sense of what music would have sounded like with the reverberation of the intact stone circle. And he and says the site has some of the characteristics you might expect of a rock concert venue. So it's like an so amphitheater, like basically. Yeah. Um, um, Salido goes on to say, Dr. Till explains that there's... Strong evidence that people several thousand years ago had an interest in acoustic environments. He's worked in, on caves in Spain in which instruments have been found deep underground. Uh, the echoes of the tunnels and cave systems may have been a special, may have had a special meaning for people. They are also what appears to be human markings on certain musical stalactites strike the stalactites the right way and they give off a deep resonant note and can be played like a huge vertical xylophone which is a great callback to our to (laughs) our episode last season where anna was a listener question episode yeah Yeah. where anna told us about a very musical stalactite in um france yeah, and the, that, actually that um the guy who took us on that tour just passed away recently oh yeah oh i'm but sorry he lives he lives forever in my heart oh gosh yes and, <laughs> and in my sense of humor here's a quote from um dr rupert till's own research paper evidence has been found that low frequency modal resonance and standing waves could indeed have been generated at stonehenge perhaps by large numbers of participants playing small hand percussion instruments such as clay or wooden drums or pieces of wood and st- or stones hitting stuff yeah, so it's like a yeah. elementary school music appreciation class. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your cardboard tube full of beans. <laughs> it also seems likely that these low frequency resonances could have been produced by strong winds. Also, like my my personal elementary school music appreciation class. Was it windy? We didn't have the best infrastructure in our buildings. And so I'm when it got curious. windy, it would like reverberate (laughs) there were low frequency resonances (laughs) um this study revealed that there was a hierarchy of position in the space implying that the different circles around the center demarcated different levels of significance with the center the most important position being Mm. within the sarsen stone rings circumference so that's those sarsen stones are the ones that are laid upright with a lintel stone placed above them. So Thank those little you. doorway shaped stones. Okay. Um, Not little. Little is the wrong word to use for Stonehenge. They're, they're quite big. It's very pejorative. Oh, look at the little stones. <laughs> I um, mean it. Uh, would have produced a powerful sense of inclusion and involvement. The stones outside the central circle seem to have had significant acoustic effects associated with them, which would have linked them perpetually to the main circle. There is evidence that a 
that 10 hertz frequencies were present, which may have helped to induce the alpha brainwave patterns often associated with relaxation, altered states of consciousness, meditation, and new age religious practice. Research has shown that it is possible that the brain can synchronize or entrain to such frequencies. In other words, if someone hears, sings, or dances to a tempo such as 10 hertz, the brain tends to also exhibit this frequency. Entrainment can encourage, support, or enhance the achievement of a translate state. So, was Stonehenge a giant concert venue for Neolithic raves? Maybe. But before we dive into other examples of altered states, let's have a quick change of our own for some ads, which will not be at 10 hertz. Probably not. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Are we going to talk about ghosts? No. Well, maybe for a deep cuts or something. Well, no, no. Well, okay. So, do you mean like so no frequencies like creating so, like low frequencies and yeah, and yeah. like how that can affect that can affect mood also? But that's the, mm-hmm. the sense of like places that feel haunted. Um, it's low. It's ultra low frequency sounds that are being produced. Mm-hmm. Like there have been studies done in where where like they say, oh, this lab feels like hecka haunted and then they come in and they're like you have a fan that like produces an ultra low frequency sound and that's why yeah and so they turned off the fan and everyone's like oh it went away and so there there's something to be said for in in thinking about this this effects on the brain yeah the effects on the brain and the effects of the body and like sort of like the embodiment of and like feeling a space and feeling the sound in the space. Um, mm-hmm. When you were, when we were talking just now about um, how there's evidence that people like, in prehistoric societies were attracted to places that had um, different auditory um, impacts. Qualities. Yeah. Different, yeah. Uh, different qualities and different effects on them. This is something else that can be brought to bear on that. So if places like there are places that could feel holy or feel dark or like however you 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 interpret it like socially and like internally yeah you may not be able to to actively hear a sound or a frequency but it may still manifest in your your state of mind yeah your brain your brain can take it in 
it perceives it, but yeah. you may not hear it. Yeah. Well, I guess, what is this a matter of? I guess of, you do hear it. You, yeah. you sense it, but you don't perceive it, I think is like tech. Is that the, sure. the difference between sensation and perception? No, I was just thinking about being attracted to places that have interesting sound qualities because anytime I go through like a tunnel or a place that has an echo, you know, I'm going to make a noise. I'm going <laughs> to sing some notes and see what happens. Do a little like, ooh. I don't know. I just like I I don't know if I if that's a learned behavior or if that's just something kind of innate where it's like, oh, this sounds funny. Let me do that again. I don't know. I think that's a very human thing is to just be like, oh, well, I think also like my dog barks at herself if there's an echo. Is that does she know she's barking at herself? No, no, no. I mean, I'm just saying like. No, but I purposely oh, am know, making you know a noise so that. Sorry, I I didn't. Yeah, really, okay, I don't okay. just yap at noises. <laughs> Who's that? Hey, hey, hey! Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to this. Okay, great. This purportedly learning podcast hey, that we do. I talked about learning. Okay, well, I will. Getting... Inc- I will include that study. Oh, I thought you were going to say my dog yapping at her echo. So next we come to the work that, of someone that I really can't believe we haven't mentioned more or at all on this podcast, really. Uh, the anthropologist Margaret Mead. Who sort of pe- a big deal. Folks may remember to a small degree um, when we talked with Dr. Uh, Beck Keough. Yes. Yes. We talked yes. to Alice she mentioned her briefly. She, she talked about her. And anyone the- who um, follows us on Instagram and Facebook would have seen you holding... Were you holding Margaret Mead or was that Zora Neale Hurston? I had Margaret Mead. We'll tell Margaret Mead's whole story another time, but this this little bit is part of it. In the 1930s, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson visited Bali to collect data on some of the local cultural practices there. While they were there, they filmed a short documentary piece called Trance and Dance in Bali. That film wasn't released until 1952, but was deemed culturally significant in 1999 and selected for inclusion in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. So their film, short though it was, was very influential for its time. It depicts a performance of Balinese people dancing in a ritual, performing a battle between dragons and witches. The dancers go through violent trances, stabbing themselves with daggers without injury. They are then restored to consciousness with holy water and incense. And so that video is freely available thanks to the Library of Congress, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So getting into a trance state and being able to do these incredible things without real bodily harm is something that seems to show up globally, though without direct evidence or written history, it's difficult to sort of pin that practice down and and try and link things together. Here's some information from a 2017 article on altered states of consciousness published by Yale's Human Relations Area Files. Craf! Yes, hraf. Trance and other altered states of consciousness are strongly associated with healing practices of shamans, a subset of magico-religious healers. Among shamans, trances are usually induced by mechanisms such as singing, chanting, drumming, or dancing, after which the shaman in training or practice collapses and becomes unconscious and has intense visual experiences. These experiences presumably induce a state of relaxation that replaces fast brain activity in the front areas of the brain with slow wave activity representing more emotional information. 
different methods are used to induce trances cross-culturally. These methods can require excessive physical movement, so including that drumming and dancing, but may also involve sleep deprivation, fasting, sleep, and psychoactive drugs. These types of behaviors are not haphazard. If sleep deprivation is present, fasting and social social isolation are often also present, such as when a young person goes off alone into the forest on a quest for a guardian spirit. So this article also goes on to provide a handy overview of altered states of consciousness, ASCs, throughout history. ASCs have likely been part of the human cognitive repertoire for at least 100,000 years, if not longer. Entoptically suggestive art, so that's art composed of motifs indicating sensory deprivation and commonly associated forms of visual, visual hallucination, can be seen as early as 70 to 100,000 years ago at Blombos Cave in South Africa. Archaeological evidence for institutionalized ASCs has been found in human societies across the globe and throughout human history. So some examples from the archaeological record. Pre-Columbian Maya society ritually consumed balche, a mead-like drink made with the hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic plant Longocarpus longestylus, or the lance pod family, yeah. which is within Fabaceae, for you plant geeks out there. It's a bean. The Olmec used hallucinogens such as native tobacco, Nicotania rustica, or the psychoactive venom found in the parathyroid... Parathyroid... Venom yes. found in the parathyroid gland of the marine toad Bufus marinus. Bones of this totally inedible toad appeared in trash deposits at the site of San Lorenzo in what is today Mexico, while uh, what this article calls the magnificent kneeling figure known as the Princeton shaman has one of these amphibians incised on the top of his head. And Amber, I included a picture for you of this magnificent Princeton shaman. It's a beautiful ceramic. Um, and it's hard to see the little frog, but you can see that he has some incised lines on top of his head. Yeah. In the South Pacific, Maori religious specialists employed Maori kava, macropiper excelsum, in religious ritual, and Polynesian groups such as the Hawaiians and Tongans used a different type of kava, piper methysticum, as an aid to communing spiritually with ancestors. Have you tried kava? I haven't had either kind of kava, but, um... In the Bay Area, there are a few kava shops because there's like a kind of a not unsubstantial um, Pacific Islander community mm -hmm. um, there in the Bay Area. And one had opened like just like off campus right before I left and I hadn't had a chance to go try it. But it's like something that has sort of moved from being very like internal to communities to something that they're like, come get kava, chill out, brah. Uh, <laughs> There's a kava place here in town where I live. Uh, I have tried it. And I think if I had kind of cultural ties to kava or it, you know, I had grown up with it, maybe my experience would be different. Uh, and I don't really know what I was expecting, but it has a very specific taste. I, it tastes kind of like if you've ever had ginseng it, I mean, mm. in, in a way that, I don't at all mean to be sort of demeaning or anything. It tastes like dirt. Like it has a really like earthy. Yeah. It has a dirt taste. Oh, it, has, I mean, not, it has like a, like an earthy. Yeah. That makes sense. And it made my tongue go numb hey. and like in a fun way. And it made my brain feel really sparkly for about 10 minutes, but that oh, that's was it. cool. Yeah. yeah. Like I've seen it um, when it's being market, like basically like being marketed to white people. It's like chill yeah. out. 
take some time for you. Have some kava. But hashtag self-care. Yeah, but mostly like I've seen it in terms of like places where like people that have like a cultural tie can like yeah, go kick exactly. it and like yeah. And that's yeah, and that's great. Which it, is like know, the I, point. Um Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. yeah, I figured I'd try it. I don't think it's for me, but that doesn't mean that it's not It's awesome clearly in its yeah, way. it's clearly for lots of people, just not for yeah, Anna. Just not for Anna. <laughs> okay. So, Iron Age Indo-European groups such as the Scythians and the Dacians. So, do you know where Dacia is? Yeah, I meant I do. to look this up. Yeah. So Where's do you Dacia? remember do you remember the when Trajan went to Dacia? Like I'm, he, I remember who Trajan is. Well, so so okay. So Trajan was a Roman emperor. Um, that, he was yep. sort of like near the end of like the like real like golden age of the yeah. Roman Empire, like when it was like really kicking it. Mm-hmm. Um and he was he was like okay enough of like this stuff in hot places let's go to <laughs> Dacia and so um I want to go somewhere chilly so Dacia is um well Dacia is like a Dacia is a Roman appellation like it's a place that like a toponym that the Romans came up with so it's a bunch of different it consisted of a bunch of different tribes okay but they lived um west of the Black Sea and sort of like around the Carpathian Mountains. Oh, that is chilly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like, is that where Romania is? Yeah. That's where Romania is. Yeah. So it's, they, they're sort, they were in what is now Romania and what is, um, and, and like Transylvania. So what is also mm-hmm. like parts of like Hungary and stuff. So, okay. So south of Dacia was Gothia. So that's where the like straight up Goths were. With the um, black lipstick. Yeah, that's where the black, yeah, that's where they were. Um, and so. The kingdom of hot topic. And so that's like the furthest, ex- really the furthest extent of the Roman Empire. And then, um, Constantine was like, we got to get back. We got to get back to what we were. I'm going to reconquest everything. Um, and then they <laughs> needed a project. Yeah. I mean, like, and then he got religion. As it were. Mm-hmm. He did. <laughs> he sure did. Famously. Yeah. So that's the, the Dacians. But the Dacians are part of that, like, like kind of like, they aren't really seen as, like, Europeans. They aren't really seen as Central Asian. It's all there. Like, folks around the Black Sea often get just kind of stuck in the middle of empires and um, a lot of, which is where a lot of research goes to is to empires and frontiers of empires but what they actually yeah but what they actually have going on in their own right um, is really cool we should do something about the the stations and sort of like the iron age of eastern europe sometime tell you what did you know that i went to bulgaria yeah. We can talk about Thracians and Dacians. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. The Thracians are oh, so, the coolest. They're so cool. Like, they're so cool. So yeah. I'm very excited about I'm, the facts. big into Thrace um, and big into Scythia. Okay. Well, we'll talk about all that. Yeah. Let's get back to but this thing. Let's now. get back to something <laughs> else that's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in school, kids. Groups such as the Scythians and the Dacians utilized cannabis sativa and melilote. Or Isn't that the, that the, like terrible liquor that people in Chicago drink? No, that's that's Malort. Oh. <laughs> but as for the melilote, it's a regional or melilo, <laughs> hey, it's hey. from me, the melilotus species. 
which have been found charred in vessels and pouches accompanying burials and were described by the Greek historian Herodotus around the 5th century BCE as part of a consciousness-altering repertoire for spiritual purification. Yeah, so Herodotus said that I think these are the guys that they would uh, throw cannabis into their fire. Yeah. And, at like, and so they'd throw it into the fire and then they'd like have a rap session about like plans or like making a decision or a treaty or something. Mm-hmm. My Herodotus, the famous, <laughs> the, the famous hot box treaties of 574 BCE. <laughs> the priestly caste at Chavin de Huantar, a, a Peruvian site occupied by the pre-Inca Chavin culture, used psychoactive substances such as mescaline-bearing San Pedro cactus, which is Trichocereus pachanoi. That means it's and, hairy. Yeah, like a fuzzy guy. <laughs> and Vilka snuff, which oh. is, oh, we've talked about this, and an anthera, because oh, yeah. I have spelled out that word to myself many times before. And all of this is in ceremonial contexts. Similar substances and accoutrement have been found at priestly burials in Tiwanaku in Bolivia. Artistic motifs at a number of late Neolithic megalithic ceremonial complexes in northern and western Europe around 4000 to 2000 BCE are thought to have been derived from entoptic hallucinatory imagery. Irish passage tombs or dolmens such as the site of Noth in County Meath are likely to have been designed as, quote, multisensorial experiences, end quote, in which darkness and acoustic resonance could produce altered states of consciousness. So, so it's yeah, like get in that tunnel. So it's like Meow Wolf. <laughs> Another regional joke. Goodness yeah. gracious. I I even know what Meow Wolf is. I know. Wow. That means All it's right. over. All right. God, I'm so excited <laughs> for this next section. It's so silly and wonderful. The idea of a prolonged dance as a way to alter one's state of mind is most definitely still around today. In fact, it's experiencing something of a comeback in the form of ecstatic dance gatherings. Oh, man. There's oh, yeah, even <laughs> ecstaticdance.com where you can find a safe space near you to dance ecstatically. Wait, one of our friends does this. Did yes. this. Okay. Uh -huh. All right. Yeah. I'm there. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but what does ecstatic dance mean? Um, I'm going to tell you from a 2018 article from the New York Times, which is going to take us on a journey. Um, and this is from Ellie. Is this Ellie Sheshchat? Sheshchat? Probably Shechet. Shechet. Okay. And this is by Ellie Shechet. Which in Hebrew means be quiet. Okay. And that's kind of funny to me. Okay. Ellie Shechet. Shh. On an otherwise unremarkable Tuesday evening, I found myself facing a stranger, swinging my arms back and forth and hooting like an owl. Hoo! I yelled, blinking uncomfortably. Whoop! She yelled back. I was warming up for an ecstatic, ecstatic dance session at Union Square Ballroom in Manhattan, which I attended with about 250 other people. Ecstatic dances are essentially free-form dance parties, and the directions for the one I attended, hosted each month by Ecstatic Dance NYC, were pretty simple. No shoes, no drugs or alcohol, no phones or cameras, and no talking on the dance floor. Okay. Uh, the only directive, allow your body to move exactly how it wants to move. This was no small challenge for me as my body is, as, is much more accustomed to slouching over a laptop or contorting itself into knots to avoid touching people on the subway. Too real. Yep. But something about ecstatic dance drew me in. 
On the designated evening, I found I fought my way through an aggressive crush of commuters in Union Square to get to the location and entered a different world. A gentle horde of 20 to 50-somethings in exercise clothes and loose palazzo pants were affectionately touching each other's faces and greeting one another with slow embraces. And I see a note here from Anna on the side. What are these? Palazzo pants are the like super wide leg ones that look oh. like a skirt, but they're split in the middle. They're like oh, okay. gauzy lady gauchos. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, they're coming back because the 90s are back, dog. Shaket continues. <laughs> As I settled into what I hoped was a discreet corner of the room, a small woman in teal sweatpants paced the floor, gently guiding us through a series of warm-up exercises that seemed des- designed to make me twitch with anxiety. Make a shape with your body and let out a sound to go with it, she instructed. Initiate unspecified physical contact with a stranger while dancing. Stare into someone's eyes for 90 seconds. So uncomfortable just reading these things. (laughs) I found this hard to do while staring into the eyes of a woman I'd never met. I was wondering whether it was impossible to stare into two eyeballs at once or if there was something wrong with me specifically when it was announced that our 90 seconds were up. Thank you, my eye contact partner murmured gracefully. Uh-huh, I said too loudly, shuffling away. But as we transitioned into the dancing segment of the evening, I began to twist and sway, losing my stiffness. With the thump of a heavy beat and explosion of cheers and howls, the pace quickened. I love you and have a wonderful journey, one of the DJs said. Dancing nice. as a means of release isn't a new phenomenon. Um, Sarah Monette, 41, says is an exotic dance facilitator and DJ who co-founded Eye Opener, an all-ages version that takes place on in New York and Boston on Sunday mornings. And she says, the idea is freeform movement to music in a judgment-free space. The idea is not to put a label on what ecstatic dance is. It can be so many amazing things. Most adherents I talked to framed it as a less structured offshoot of five rhythms, a meditative meditative dynamic movement practice that guides dancers through a wave of five distinct sequences. Legend has it that Max Fathom, what, 50, uh, now a craft services professional in Austin, Texas, began blending the five rhythms concept with electronic dance music after a trip to Burning Man in the early 2000s. Mr. Fathom... Fathom is his burner name. Put on a popular Sunday mor- put on popular Sunday morning dances at the Kalani Retreat Center in Hawaii, and from there the practice spread to such disparate places as Kansas City, Missouri, and Christchurch, New Zealand. As the night went on, I grew more comfortable taking up space, slowly shifting from the planted feet sexy club grind I learned in seventh grade into bigger, looser, weirder movements, flapping my body around like a tube man at a car dealership. Next to me, a man and woman climbed over each other's bodies, twisting into a pretzel on the floor. Two men barked at each other, jumping up and down. The oddness of it all ceased to register. By 10 p.m., I had become enthralled by my fingers, how perfect they were. In a trance-like state, I held them up, twisting them around in the soft pink glow. At the end, I practically floated through the tangled, blissed-out mass toward the exit. It felt a little bit like the end of the world. Or the beginning. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, on like that, that note, let's journey briefly into some ads. Yeah. 
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. All right. Lastly for this week, here is an archaeological example of altered consciousness by means of presumably ingested substances. We covered this on old news a few months ago, but it's a very cool story. So I think it's worth repeating in a little bit more depth here. This was originally published in the journal Science in May 2019. I know the lead author. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Jose Capriles. No, Melanie. Oh, Melanie Miller. Okay. When Jose Capriles arrived in 2008 at the Cuevo de Chileño rock shelter nestled on the western slopes of Bolivia's Andes, he didn't know what he would find within. I mean, you seldom do when you're looking into it. Like maybe you have an idea. What if it's a place you've Rocks. never been before? You're like, yeah, maybe I'll find some dirt. Sweeping aside layers of fresh and ancient llama dung. Okay, wow. I could have I could have guessed that he would find that. He found the remains. <laughs> I just like the idea of this this um, this archaeologist just being like so jazzed to be like, what will I find? <laughs> Llama poops. <laughs> Ecstatic <Wow>. excavation. <laughs> oh, God, that's the worst idea. I know. Just feel the layers, man. <laughs> and, and make sounds. Honk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're very serious scientists and journalists. Sweeping aside layers of fresh and ancient llama dung, he found the remains of an ancient burial site. Stone markers suggesting a body had once been interred there. I guess it was no longer there. And a small leather bag cinched with a string. Inside the bag was a collection of ancient drug paraphernalia. Bone spatulas to crush the seeds of plants with psychoactive compounds, wooden tablets inlaid with gemstones to serve as a crushing surface, a wooden snuffing tube with a carved humanoid figure, and a small pouch stitched together from the snouts of three foxes. I believe that's called a snouch. A snouch. Oh. And so all of all of this, that the snouch, that that is the part that gets me, if only because I want to know what the significance of, of the snoot is. Because like if you got a fox handy. There's a lot of other parts that would make a much easier pouch. But I guess if you want to use the whole fox, you don't really use the nose for anything else. So if you got some snoots, extra snoots. And I told you it's a snouch. A snouch. Well, in any case, Melanie Miller. I know her. Lead author of a new study on the discovery and a bioarchaeologist at the University of Otago in New Zealand said... Quote, whoever had this bag of amazing goodies would have had to travel great distances to acquire those plants. Either that or they had really extensive exchange networks, end quote. 
Nearly every culture on Earth has dabbled with consciousness and perception-altering substances. Indigenous groups from Central and South America have used hallucinogens such as peyote and psilocybin mushrooms during rituals and religious ceremonies for thousands of years. Archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of items that provide a glimpse into these ancient practices, but few are as complete as the Bolivian find. Using a technique frequently used in modern modern illicit drug testing called liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry, goodness. If I vaped, that's what I would call it. Liquid chromatography? Tandem mass? Yeah, that's what I would refer to. Every that's time? That's what I would call Yeah. If you were pulling down that sweet cotton? Yes. <laughs> Miller and her fellow researchers hunted for chemical signatures in the sample from the, the, the snouch. Thank you. They identified at least five psychoactive substances, cocaine, benzoyl econine, bufotenine, harmine, and dimethyltryptamine. So maybe it's bufotenine, harmine, and dimethyltryptamine. I don't know. Harmine and dimethyltryptamine are the main ingredients in ayahuasca, used ceremonially for centuries by indigenous South Americans. Miller says their presence alongside the snuffing tube and tablet may mean that people inhaled these chemicals long before they were brewed into a beverage, which is how they're usually consumed now. The mixture's origins also offer clues to the trade routes of the people who occupied the high plains. Several of the compounds come from the plant genus, here it is again, Adenanthera also known as Vilca, Sibyl, or Yopo, which grows widely throughout South America, but not in this region of the Andes. Similarly, the likely source of the harmine is a lowland Amazonian species, so not local plants. Miller says it's possible that the mixture of compounds was unique to the region. The fact that at least two of the ingredients are known to be used in tandem in ayahuasca raises the possibility that this shaman was selecting plant combinations for specific mind-altering effects. Um, and so... This report by Miller et al. was released in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Panas. And so Miller says, maybe they were mixing multiple things together because they realized when they're combined, they have a whole different set of experiences. And so I think it's really interesting, me personally, not not this article anymore, that there were specific mixes being created because not only does it seem to indicate this deep knowledge of the properties of these plants, but also of the shaman's own reaction to them. So I don't know a whole lot about psychoactive substances, mom and dad, officer. But logically, it would seem that since everyone has a different physiology and metabolism, everyone would react differently. You'd see different things, you'd experience different effects. So this snouch might have been a truly individualized thing so did this person this this shaman tinker with different mixtures until they found the one that worked for them was this knowledge that was passed down through generations of shamans there's a whole lot of questions rather than answers that are opened up by this sort of find which is really honestly one of the best parts of archaeology and anthropology and it expands your mind no dancing or substances required so before we wrap up this week's episode, we have a book club recommendation. We're back to book club. Book club. I still don't have a theme song for book club. <laughs> book club. So it's the book I mentioned at the top of the show. Robert Evans, uh, not the film director. Robert Evans, A Brief History of Vice. So basically he talks about some of the first archaeological examples of major types of mind-altering substances. And then he writes about how he tried them all on himself and his friends, except apparently LSD for legal reasons. Um, he's a good writer. The book has a, a very conversational tone that 
made it very easy to read. It's fun. I love so, him. So we recommend that. Yes, he's he's very great. Just just want the record to state that. <laughs> Amber loves him. Robert, if you're listening, Amber loves him. Oh my you. God. Um so with that. We're going to dance away till next week, where we'll be back in your ears with new dirt, possibly a new voice. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> from me or from you? <laughs> from, from me. <laughs> I'm not replacing you with my reference. new voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find until then and after then and up until then. Um, you can find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and any other podcatcher you like. Mm-hmm. And if you, you can, don't find oh. them on a podcatcher, tell us and we will Yeah, we'll, we'll make it happen. Oh, well, I'm not we'll going to say that. Make it happen. We'll yeah, investigate. we'll try. Let us know and we will try our best. You can also find us on social media where we post news stories, goofy jokes, and the occasional pithy comment. On Facebook, we are at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Yeah. And you can also go to our website, thedirtpod.com. So you can find all that and you can go buy yourself some merch, which other people are doing. And that's very exciting. People are buying our stuff, Ah. our designs. I'm really happy with the new design that I just did where it's the two jiving skeletons. It's ecstatic dance. They're ecstatically dancing skeletons. And it says everybody is homo sapiens. That nice. That's so that nice. nice. You can get that on a sweatshirt or a crop top, or or a mug. Or if you if you want something more intangible, you can also go to our website and sponsor an episode, all your own. But I mean, you have to have, you have to share it with our entire RSS feed. But it's yours specifically. Yeah, it's yours in name, and uh, we have some really really cool sponsored episodes coming up in the next few weeks. So. Stay tuned for those. So thank you to everyone who's sponsored an episode so far. Um, it's really, it's really fun. Yeah. For and, us and thanks for coming that. back. Sorry. It took yeah. so long. I died. Yeah. Amber had the plague and oh. I was in a different country. We're really, really happy to be back. Thank you. Thank you for sticking with us. And um, finally, if you like our buddy, Don. Nold, want Donald. Jeez. Sub- uh, so forward. Mr. Donald, if you want to support us on a recurring basis, you can do that at any number of tiers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. But really, honestly, the thing that helps us the most is when you leave reviews on Apple podcasts, because that helps people find us. To those of you who have left reviews, thank you so much. To those of you who listen, please leave some reviews, please. And thank you. And we love you. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.